Hi everyone, it's me again, Kirk Monroe, um, live here on Anchor Podcast, and I'm glad to see that I have many of followers um, still being tuned in to the series Signing Their Lives Away, The Fame and Misfortune of the Men Who Signed the Declaration of Independence. Uh, it was just uh, probably about an hour ago I was on the air uh, talking about North Carolina. Well, what do you know? It's a surprise. I'm back on again now, and we're going to be talking about that other state whose last name is Carolina. This time it's South Carolina. This is a first since doing Anchor Podcast, where I've talked about two um, matters in one day. But hey, if you have the time to do it, go for it. So, colony number 12 being South Carolina. South Carolina is the easternmost of the Deep South, bordered to the north by North Carolina and to the southwest by Georgia across the Savannah River. Like North Carolina, South Carolina was named in honor of King Charles I. What is South Carolina's um, nickname in terms of a state motto name? It's known as the Palmetto State. Why so? Well, there are palmetto trees in South Carolina, but it's interesting that one of the reasons why it became the Palmetto State was that during the American Revolutionary War, when the uh, war itself turned uh, to the south, a commander by the name of William Moultrie, and there is a fort there named Fort Moultrie, named in his honor, uh, William Moultrie uh, led a group of um, I guess it's safe to say regulars or militiamen uh, fighting against the British. The British launched um, cannonballs into the vicinity of uh, palmetto trees. Of course, these palmetto trees weren't standing as if tourists were going to see them. Um, The Americans had actually uh, constructed um, forts out of uh, palmetto trees, and we're not just talking about forts where you would stay the night in, but uh, what do you call it? Fort uh, defensive fort measures uh, that were that involved using palmetto trees to protect um, the units from uh, devastating uh, cannon uh, shots. So in the end, uh, when the British would fire uh, cannonballs into the opposition line, they would hit the palmetto tree, or should I say the palmetto trees? The palmetto trees would absorb the shot. But the cannonballs themselves would not break the tree apart. So in other words, these palmetto trees were so resistant that when cannon was fired, they wouldn't, uh, like I said a moment ago, they wouldn't break apart. Uh, As a matter of fact, I've seen plenty of palmetto trees in uh, Hilton Head, South Carolina. Uh, That's where my family and I have vacationed for years. But uh, whenever you see a palmetto tree and you feel just how thick the bark is, you know that it's um, a very impenetrable um, structure. Um, and knowing that uh, cannonballs, whether it's a three or a six pounder, uh, it won't break the outer skin. So that is w- uh, one of the reasons why South Carolina is called uh, the, Palmetto, uh, the Palmetto State. So um, around 1600, or what's known as the uh, pre-Columbian era, There are about 20,000 Indians living in South Carolina. And the largest two tribes inhabiting South Carolina are the Cherokee and the Catawba. And yes, the Catawba uh, did um, 
reside in present-day North Carolina, but they are uh, what you call settlements or uh, what you call empire stretched into South Carolina. As for the Cherokee, their territory was not only confined to, say, uh, South and North Carolina, but historians know that Cherokee had settlements in uh, which what we call far southwest Virginia, or in that Appalachian Plateau um, region. Cherokees also had um, settlements in present-day Georgia. Uh, what I do know about the Cherokees is that they had what were called upper, middle, and lower uh, Cherokee um, territories. It's probably best uh, not to put everybody in one area. It's good to have them all spaced out. But along the Savannah River, you had other um, Indian nation tribes like the Appalachee, the Yuchi, and the Yamasee. I read a book last year called A Colonial Complex about uh, South Carolina's colonial history and how um, the colony of South Carolina was almost uh, annihilated because of the Yamasee tribe. And there is a small town just before getting off on the exit to Hilton Head uh, referred to as uh, Yamasee. And these Indians in particular, being the Apalachee, the Yuchi, and the Yamasee, were uh, village dwellers. In other words, they relied on agriculture as a main food source. Now, who were the first Europeans to explore South Carolina? Well, believe it or not, the answer is not the English. The Spanish were. They first explored uh, present-day South Carolina as early as 1521. The first European settlement in the mainland United States was established in 1526 by the Spanish. It was known as San Miguel de Gualdape. It was um, established near present-day Georgetown, which is um, north of Charleston and not far from uh, what we now refer to as Myrtle Beach or Florence, uh, South Carolina. However, this settlement didn't last very long. It was abandoned eight months after it was uh, first established. But we go to 1562, and which is the next group of Europeans to establish um, a settlement in, so in present-day South Carolina? The French Huguenots. They established a settlement on what's known as present-day Paris Island, that famous island home to um, Marine Camp. Now, of course, if any of us know who the French Huguenots are, uh, we should know right away why they came to the New World. Well, for one, they were from France, and two, they were persecuted um, rigorously, uh, all in the name of not adhering to the Catholic Church. And there is a road not far from where my wife and I live called Huguenot Road, in honor of those uh, Huguenots, or should I say Huguenot peoples, who came from uh, France to the New World seeking um, religious protection, or should I say, let alone religious haven. So by, um, by 1629, I know it might, yes, by 1629, here we are in, into the 17th century, the English have finally gotten a stronghold on establishing themselves in the New World, of course, 1629 being 22 years after the first English settlement in the New World being Jamestown, Virginia, uh, the province of Carolina is, is established by uh, King Charles I in what we know as North and South Carolina today. Basically, the whole colony of Carolina was put under uh, one um, 
one domain, and it turns out that had um, Carolina not been split into a north or a south, it would have been the fifth largest state today. You know, look at Virginia, for example. What happened to Virginia years later down the road? The western part of the state being that area that borders Pennsylvania, Ohio, and a part of Maryland, or, or mostly, I should say, Pennsylvania and Ohio, broke away from um, Virginia to become West Virginia. I often tell myself, what if that hadn't happened? I can't imagine just how much bigger Virginia would have been even to this day. So it seems like Carolina and Virginia both... Um, in the end, um, had land lost uh, for various um, personal reasons, or should I say territory of theirs that was lost for uh, personal reasons. But come 1663, King Charles II, who is the son of Charles I, grants land to eight lords proprietors. And And he did this because these proprietors had assisted him in getting him back on the throne where he belonged. Here's an interesting uh, person's name, Anthony Ashley Cooper. He was one of the Lord Proprietors for South Carolina. He planned a grand model for province of Carolina to writing fundamental constitutions of Carolina which laid a cornerstone for Colony's future being land distribution in a society that was predominantly based on hierarchy. You know, what's interesting about this gentleman is that his last name being Cooper and his middle name being Ashley, there are two rivers in Charleston known as the Ashley and the Cooper River. Well, it's safe to say that per, I would have to do research on this, but I do wonder if perhaps Anthony Cooper's middle name could have been on either his father's side or his mother's side. But regardless, in Charleston, you have the Ashley and the Cooper River, and it's all tied to his family. In the 1670s, English planters start making their presence known, and A fair majority of these planters came from Barbados. My father uh, had read a book uh, not long ago called Eleven Nations, and he has often said that, based off of that book he read, that the people who came from Barbados were the worst. Why do I say that? Because they were some of the uh, worst um, individuals when it came to practicing in the slave trade, and um, how they went about um, handling that uh, business. The English planters were um, known for setting up plantations that were geared for cultivating rice and indigo. Those are the two big uh, staple crops in South Carolina. And by the time uh, the second half of the 18th century rolls around, South Carolina becomes the richest of the 13 colonies. Think about it. Even richer than Virginia, who is the largest. What is important about 1776, besides the fact that that's the same year that that all 13 colonies would officially declare their independence from England, well, 
in South Carolina, what's important, especially on March 26th of 1776, South Carolina became the second colony that same year, just two months after New Hampshire had announced its declaration of separating from King George, not just from King George, but Parliament, but most of all, England. What I find interesting here is that you take New Hampshire, which is the northernmost of the 13 colonies, South Carolina being second in line as being the southernmost of the 13 colonies, but the two of them have something together in common. They are setting the bar by being the first two colonies to declare their independence from England before an official um, document or an official uh, motion to approve by all 13 colonies eventually takes place. Well, who becomes South Carolina's first state president, or should I say perhaps governor? None other than a Mr. John Rutledge. And the Rutledge family is another uh, prominent uh, South Carolina um, family. In 1778, though, South Carolina becomes the first state to ratify the Articles of Confederation. Now, um, when the American Revolution breaks out, here's a good true or false question. Is fighting going on in all 13 of the colonies at the same time? The answer is no. Where does fighting begin? when the American Revolution breaks out? That's an easy answer. The shots heard around the world at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, beginning on April 17, 1775. Now, historians do know that the British tried to invade Charleston in 1776, not long after the Declaration of Independence was, was signed. However, that... Uh, plot um, failed, and so South Carolina was pretty much uh, free for about three years. But by 1779, the British start um, making uh, plans to um, attack the South, not just so much to attack the Southern colonies, but to uh, develop um, stronger alliances with those who are loyalists in the hopes that the loyalists would be able to assemble militias of their own to take up arms with the crown to defeat the, um, what we would, some would say as partisans, or in this case, patriots. One third of all military combat in the American Revolutionary War did take place in South Carolina. So that's 33%. That's more than any other colony. And besides warfare between the patriots and the redcoats, there was a nasty civil war going on. How can there be a civil war going on while there is an actual revolutionary war involving the fate of our country? Well, the civil war that's going on in South Carolina is between the loyalists, those who are pro-British, and the partisans, or what we would call like the patriots. The Loyalists and the Partisans are fighting one another left and right to the point where the back country, which is well on the outskirts of the low country, the back country basically is in a bad state of uncertainty to where South Carolina's, um, what we might call in today's time like national security, but South Carolina's uh, security is um, 
not just at stake, it's beyond at stake. And if you're looking for a good book to read, which I read probably about seven years ago, it's called Partisans and Redcoats. It's about the, con the inner conflict of uh, loyalists and partisans in the South Carolina backcountry. It's bad enough if your uh, neighbor could be a loyalist, and it might be bad enough if your neighbor is a um, patriot. What's scary is that patriots and loyalists were killing each other left and right, not just on battlefield, but uh, people were dying in their homes. And to make, um, and here's a, a good example. Uh, you all remember the movie The Patriot with Mel Gibson and the late Heath Ledger. There was a scene towards the end of the movie where the Dragoon Force, um, the man who is the head of the Dragoon Force, his, he wasn't portraying Bannister Tarleton, or should I say Bloody Ban. He was portraying a, a made-up uh, character named a Colonel Tavington. Well, the Dragoon Force arrives to the church, and the congregation is there. The Dragoon Force wanted to know who was giving aid to Benjamin Martin, played by Mel Gibson. Nobody came forward. But one man decided from within the congregation to fall for the Dragoon Force's bait. He basically points out to the individual who has been giving aid to Benjamin Martin and his men. The man who had been giving aid was the was um, Heath Ledger's father-in-law in the movie. This man said, the man who came forward and made the accusation said this, you said we would be forgiven. Colonel Tavington says this, and indeed you may be forgiven, but that's between you and God. In other words, the man who went forward, not only did he fall for the bait, he betrayed his congregation. Sadly, the congregation died. They weren't gunned down by rifle. The British Dragoon Force burned the church with everyone alive in it. Everyone lost their lives. The whole community was destroyed. All because one man fell for another person's bait. This is, a, this is an example of just how um, bad... Not so much how bad, but how bad the blood was between partisans and loyalists. Now, I don't know how true it was if, in fact, a church got burned. It's possible that a church could have been burned, in, in, say, in South Carolina, but with people inside. Who knows? Of course, Hollywood will do things to um, fabricate the truth, but it's just an example of... Um, how nasty the feud was between loyalists and partisans that resulted not just in one person's death, but in multiple people dying, not just from within a family, but from a community as a whole. Now, how many men from South Carolina signed the Declaration of Independence? The number is between four and six. Uh, the answer is four. These four men were named Thomas Lynch Jr., Arthur Middleton, Edward Rutledge, and Thomas Hayward Jr. We're going to talk about two of the signers, Arthur Middleton and Thomas Hayward Jr. Who is Arthur Middleton? We know he was born in 1742 at Middleton, 
place on the Ashley River near Charleston. He came from a family with immense wealth. The family possessed nearly 50,000 acres and 800 servants. 50,000 acres of land. Um, I think it's safe to say that the family themselves would be able to hold public office because remember, especially in the southern colonies, being from Virginia to Georgia, and it might be said the same in Maryland, it could be elsewhere, but most notably in the southern colonies, if you were a well-to-do aristocrat and owned vast amounts of land, it was an automatic given that you would be entitled to hold political office of any level. And Mr. Middleton, in fact, did come from a patriotic family, as his father, Henry Middleton, was president of the First Continental Congress. He was referred to as Mr. Marvel. We're not talking Marvel comic books, but he was just referred to as Mr. Marvel. How so? Well, he helped oversee his colony's defense strategies. It seems as though uh, Mr. Middleton did everything there was to be one step ahead of the game. And here's something um, worthy to point out. All four South Carolina signers were below the age of 40, making them the youngest bunch of men present of all 13 colonies in Philadelphia. Mr. Middleton helped persuade the South Carolina delegation to change their mind, especially come July 2nd. How so? Well, on July 1st, all of South Carolina and Pennsylvania had voted no, New York had abstained, and Delaware was deadlocked. However, on July 2nd, that all changes. I would have to say an act of God perhaps did that, where all four were in line in voting for independence. Well, Arthur Middleton served in the militia during the Revolutionary War, and in May 1780, he, along with Edward Rutledge and Thomas Hayward Jr., were imprisoned for 14 months. I can't imagine being a, a prisoner of war, but for 14 months, it, it truly is a miracle that they all survived, and they got out on a prisoner exchange. That was a very common practice during the American Revolution. If, say, the uh, Patriots had a couple of British prisoners of high rank and the British prisoners had uh, Patriot prisoners that matched the same status, a prison exchange was um, more than likely to happen. Now, after the American Revolutionary War ended, Mr. Middleton had um, a fair number of property belongings destroyed. And he did lose, and he did um, lose a fair number of servants who were sold off by the British. You know, it's interesting that the British always convince the servants, especially from from well-to-do uh, plantations, they would come up with pitch lines to say, "Hey, if you join us, you'll not only be fighting for the crown, but you'll be granted your freedom." Well, many servants did fall for their bait. And it just so happens that when they went to fight for the British, after the war, they were sent to other parts of the world, uh, never to be heard from again. As for Mr. Middleton, did he and his family get back any of the belongings that were taken by the British? It turns out that some of them were brought back. How so? Because Arthur Middleton's wife had 
family members on her side who were um, loyalist. And it's safe to say that perhaps some of her family members may have persuaded the British um, military that was present in South Carolina to return those belongings. Well, you know, it's one thing to be married, especially during this time, but just because you're married, it doesn't mean that your spouse uh, could be on the same page as you are. In other words, your spouse might agree with your views, but your spouse has extended family members who hold the opposite view. And uh, you talk about dysfunction right there. You talk about a lot of strife and um, split. A good example of a family, of a prominent family in Virginia that had a lot of uh, divisions was the Randolphs, for whom Thomas Jefferson was related to on his mother's side. There were a fair number of Randolph family members who were uh, very loyal to the crown, and then you had a fair number who were um, anti-British. Um, and those who were loyal to the crown um, eventually um, left to go to England or elsewhere um, and for exile purposes. Well, Mr. Middleton served in Congress a second go-around until 1782. He served on and off in the state legislature and was one of the original trustees to the College of Charleston. He died on New Year's Day of 1787 at the age of 44, leaving a wife and nine children behind. You know, 44 is a very young age. It's safe to say that 44 was pretty young in 1787. However, knowing that Mr. Middleton made it past the age of, say, 20 was remarkable, but the fact that, you know, he left a wife and nine children behind was um, very um, sad, knowing that he, uh, you know, he accomplished a lot, but yet he didn't uh, live to see the Constitution um, be um, implemented, and he did not live to see George Washington become our nation's first president. But the most important thing was that he did um, make his uh, impact felt by signing the Declaration of Independence and for being a staunch patriot the whole way through. Our second signer is Thomas Hayward, Jr. He was born in 1746, the son of a rich planter, but, of course, all of the signers from South Carolina came from rich planter families. But nonetheless, it's good to point it out. He studied law in London. Think about it. If you wanted to study law, one of your options was to go to London, England. If not, you had to go to a college in um, colonial America. And remember, you only have about nine colleges to choose from, being Brown, Yale, Harvard, Princeton, uh, uh, King's College, which would become Columbia. You had um, Queen's College in New Jersey, which became Rutgers. You had um, you had William and Mary. That was the first, That was the the only college in the South. And then you had two other uh, schools. So the only other option would have been to have gone to one of those uh, colleges and um, be assigned a uh, an apprenticeship to a. Um, an instructor, or in the case of at William & Mary, to a law professor being none other than Mr. George Wyth. So once he returns back to South Carolina, Mr. Hayward uh, Jr. starts practicing law at age 25. That's very impressive right there. 
Uh, Thomas Hayward Jr. lived on a great plantation estate known as Whitehall. It is important to note that while studying law in England, he developed anti-British sentiment. Now, what do you think caused South Carolina in the end, just before 1776, to go against England? Here's the answer. When Parliament passed the 1774 Port Act, which closed the entire port of Boston, many in South Carolina, most notably in Charleston, felt that they were going to be next. So how does South Carolina respond in order to prevent the same uh, similar mishap which occurred to the people of Boston in 1774? Well, South Carolina, the people of South Carolina uh, go about ousting the royal governor and, and by ousting the royal governor, a new government, along with a constitution, were put into play. You know, it's one thing to want your current uh, governor being a royal governor ousted, but you better have something put into play as soon as possible. If not, you could have um, anarchy. You could have all kinds of... Um, disruption, disorder, chaos. You've got to have an institution put into play to ensure that some form of government can function. Mr. Hayward was 30 years of age when sent off to Philadelphia. Like his other three counterparts, being Mr. Rutledge and uh, Mr. Middleton and um, Mr. Um, Lynch Jr., they all voted no on uh, July 1st, but would reverse course the next day on the 2nd, being um, one of 12 colonies to vote in uh, favor of independence while New York still held out, but would join the other 12 five days later after July 4th being the, on the 9th of July. Uh, Thomas Hayward Jr. stayed in Congress until 1778, and in, the, in that same year he also signed the Articles of Confederation. Did the American Revolutionary War itself bring adversity to Mr. Hayward? Yes, it did. But then again, it, it brought adversity to several of our other signers. I don't think anybody would have been immune from the adversity aspect of war. Well, Mr. Hayward served as a captain in the militia, and in 1779 he was wounded in an attack on Port Royal Island, just north of Hilton Head um, Island. And in 1780, his plantation, being Whitehall, was vandalized by the British. He lost many servants. And to make matters worse, that same year, being May 1780, Thomas Hayward was captured at the Battle of Charleston. That battle um, has often been seen as one that perhaps shouldn't have uh, happened. It was conducted by um, a General Benjamin Lincoln, who wanted to um, send a message to those in South Carolina that he was not going to back down without a fight against the British. While that was an admirable um, thing to do, many historians have questioned it because, he, for one, he was outnumbered very badly, and two, in the end, he lost, and not only did he lost, not only, should I say, not only did he lose the, the uh, battle, he and he and those who uh, participated were forced to surrender, not only to uh, relinquish their arms, but to surrender and in return by becoming prisoners of war. 
As for um, Mr. Hayward Jr., he was um, in prison for 14 months from May of 1780 to, to July 1781. He was in prison with um, the other two uh, signers being um, Mr. Middleton and um, Mr. Uh, Rutledge. And while he was in prison, he began writing songs about freedom. And it turns out that he was one of two signers who wrote songs, the other one being Francis Hopkinson of New Jersey. And, and as mentioned earlier with um, Arthur Middleton, um, he and uh, Mr. Hayward and uh, Mr. Rutledge were released as part of a prisoner exchange. After the war, uh, Mr. Hayward served as a judge and a state legislator, which happened later in his life. He did um, devote himself in later years to rebuilding Whitehall Plantation, and it turns out that the plantation um, was around, but sadly it was uh, destroyed for good during the Civil War. He was the oldest living member of the four-man delegation from South Carolina. He died in 1809 at age 63. And uh, here's something to point out uh, that is worth noting. Uh, my wife and I learned this old, probably about five or six years ago on a visit to uh, Colonial Williamsburg. If you lived in the southern colonies uh, between Virginia, the Carolinas, and Georgia, well, actually, I'd say Virginia might have been the borderline because depending on where you lived in Virginia, you, you, your life expectancy chances uh, varied, especially if you lived in Tidewater, Virginia, uh, your life expect expectancy might not have been as high as, say, living in the Piedmont or um, what we would call uh, nowadays Northern Virginia. But if you lived in the Carolinas and Georgia, life expectancy wasn't uh, very high. Uh, you were lucky if you made it to the age of 40 or 50. But as for Mr. Uh, Thomas Hayward Jr., he lived to be 63. He died in 1809, and to think he lived long enough to see um, our first three presidents um, preside over our country, being Washington, Adams, and Jefferson. And yes, he was the oldest living member of the four-man delegation from South Carolina. He was known as the signer slash songwriter. I tell you, it's hard to believe that we have accomplished uh, 12 colonies now. We only have one more left. Can anybody take a guess what that colony will be? The answer is Georgia. Well, it, it's been a great discussion, and I look forward to another upcoming podcast session uh, here soon. And thank you again to all of my um history fans out there who are benefiting from this. Take care and have a great upcoming 4th of July holiday.